Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Fast food makes a lot of people happy, but why is it always sold in plastic takeaway that could last forever, polluting our planet for generations to come? Takeaway food, especially since the pandemic, has become more popular than ever. And with it, there is a lot more plastic going into landfill. Almost all cafes and restaurants now offer takeaway and delivery option for meals, snacks and drinks, far more than they did 50 years ago, all leading to an increase in pollution in our world today. My guest today is Safiya Qureshi, founder and CEO of Club Zero. Club Zero has pioneered returnable packaging system for food and beverage brands globally with the ultimate goal of getting to a zero-waste society. Today, they serve customers across EU and North America, including Just Eat Takeaway, next-gen consortium brands like Starbucks, McDonald's, Nestle, Wendy's, Yum! Brands, as well as Cushman and Wakefield and John Lewis and Partners. I'm really excited to have this conversation with Sophia today to talk more about her vision for the company. So welcome to the show, Sophia. Hi, Anita. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited to be here for a number of reasons. Firstly, I know you've got some juicy questions for me. Hopefully we can share some stories of what's going on behind the curtains. And secondly, you've observed some of our journey through the Unreasonable Group. So it's wonderful to be here and share some enlightenment on what its founder and CEO actually does. Excellent. Let's start at the beginning, 2015, when the idea popped into your head. I understand your background is in architecture. So would love to hear what triggered you to jump from just going from, oh, this is a cool idea. Someone should be doing it to, I really need to do this. I've always loved the impossible. For me, the the bigger the challenge, the more excitement it creates. As an architect, I've built schools, I've built libraries, I've, you know, done some fantastic homes and had the pleasure of working with some amazing clients. And I got to a point where I realized there's this enormous issue that we have in society, which is to do with the way that we consume. And that's not going anywhere how do I use all the skills that I have developed up until this moment to do something about what the inevitable is going to happen to our cities as our cities get populated, as people consume more. When you design a building, you don't design a physical space. You think about what does somebody need to do to first even arrive at the idea of understanding where the building exists? How do they make their way there? What do they do when they enter? How do you organize them as they move through the spaces? There's an awful lot of spatial awareness that you have to have a great understanding of when you arrange things. In 2015, I had this light bulb moment. I had been moonlighting. I'd set up my practice on the side, which for anyone listening is kind of how you start your journey into setting up your own business. It's a side hustle. You can't escape the security of a job and having something that pays your bills, but equally you want to move into something that really answers all the things that you want answered for yourself. I was on my way into Waterloo and one day I looked up and there were a few guys drinking coffees from these paper cups. They were identical paper cups. And I noticed that they all got off at the final stop and they threw those paper cups straight into the nearest bin. And I thought that was really interesting because your brain is on thinking mode when you're in any form of transit. You're not really 
consciously aware of what you're doing, you're just in absorption mode because you know you have 30 minutes to kill and why not just watch people and observe the world around you. What I found fascinating was that we consume around certain patterns. So when we are on our day-to-day, what we realize is that We buy something on our way into work, which might be a coffee, which might be a food item, and we replicate this pattern on a daily basis, more or less. It's the same when you go into the supermarket. You more or less know what you're going to buy because it's the same things that you buy every week. So we're very habitual. And what I realized was all of those guys bought their coffee at the same spot. They were all holding the same product, and they all ended their journey exactly in the same spot. So that for me said, well, instead of that disposable packaging that they were holding, maybe I could put something else in their hands. And instead of that bin that they're throwing everything into, maybe that's something I could service. And I was incredibly inspired by the work from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation at the time around the circular economy and really drilling into this idea of we have to think about how we use things in perpetuity not in singularity. And we have to figure out, in the same we do with buildings. Buildings are there for decades. And that's why the industry is so massively governed is because we have to put things that are stable. We have to look after people when they're in them. And so they're very carefully designed, yet everything that's designed for the singular is almost designed on the brink of destruction. We're seeing a lot of single-use plastics. We're seeing a lot of single-use disposable packaging. So not just plastics, but all kinds of different materials thrown around our cities, ending up in the ocean because they're not designed for perpetuity. Also, there's absolutely no consideration on what happens to them at the end of their life. What I wanted to do was build a system that enabled us to consume in the same way we always do, not have this message of you have to eat less or drink less or carry your own, but actually have a system which was super convenient for a consumer and create this optionality where they can go in to their favorite restaurant, food and beverage outlet, order something or pick up something to go and have the option of it being in a reusable packaging, take it away and be able to return it anywhere to another participating location. There are so many different ways in which people are trying to solve the plastic problem today. There is food retailers like Leon that are making the switch to compostable cutlery of made of wood or bamboo. There are food outlets that are offering discounts to customers to bring their own mug like Pret-a-Manger or Starbucks. There's so many different ways in which people are solving this problem. How did you figure out that this system wide approach is the way you want to go. There's an opportunity, that there's feasibility, that it's big enough of a market. How did you zero in on that way to solve the problem? We are all consumers at the end of the day. So we don't make the decisions. You and I walk into a supermarket and are given a bunch of options on how we buy. But we are not the ones making a decision on how something is delivered to us. We're not the ones who make the decision on what material it is, what packaging is available to us. We might question, well, is this recyclable in my home? Those industrial decision-making processes are what's going on way upstream on the other side. It's being dealt with by brand. It's being dealt with by people who design the systems. For me, systems thinking is just a mindset. We look at how 
do our cities need to be in five years time, 10 years time? We don't design for the present, we design for the future. So architects are futurists by DNA. From the point you started just drawing something to those actually being worked through the process, through the planning, the construction process and the completion process, that's like a five-year timeline. So designing something for now means that it will already be redundant in five years time. The way that you throw this is, well, how will people use our cities in five, 10, 15, 20 years time? And how do we ensure that we have the systems in place to allow that transition to happen so that consumers are left with something that they are expecting, are left with something that they want and desire, and we don't have a situation where they're just fed up or frustrated or angry because culturally, architects essentially think across multiple streams of things. So when I was looking at it from a systemic perspective, it's very much trying to not create one system that fits for one specific brand, but create an open system that will enable multiple brands to adjust and plug into. It's kind of your comparison of Google versus Apple. You have open standards. Our system doesn't enable only our own packaging. It enables third-party packaging. So any brand, as long as it's specifically designing the packaging in a certain way to be reused a certain number of times, can add their packaging to our system. It's very versatile. And so you want to make sure that it's capable of transforming the evolution for a city to become zero waste by including the opportunity for anyone who wants to be involved to get involved without having this disjointed or displaced user experience for a consumer. Consumer doesn't want five of us operating in a city. Consumer wants ease of use. It's the same reason why you have partnerships between even competitors, because you want the ultimate goal of making it super easy for a consumer. They can return products to our system. They can return products to other people's systems. And we will have collaborative partnerships between yourselves to make sure that we manage anything that's going on behind the scenes to make this smooth and easy for a consumer. What I find most fascinating about your stories thus far, Safia, is this transition from being an architect to being an entrepreneur. How has that transition been for you? They're very different paths. One is a service economy where I have a brief, I have a client, I have a budget. (laughs) But that's not a startup by definition, that's a service business. It was very much a path, a sort of fork in the road where... I I transitioned from the architect to the entrepreneur. And I remember it very clearly because Club Zero, when it first started off, started off as a project in my studio. So very much like any other piece of work I would do, it existed as, I guess, collateral. Collateral pictures, images, examples, designs, etc. Interviews with consumers to say, would you like something like this? And then you can only take it to a certain point and that was it. That It existed as collateral as a great project. And so then I realized, well, what next? Do I just leave this as a project I did? and move on to the next one. And we were doing fantastic projects. I could have 100% taken that path. But what I felt was, well, I've never taken something all the way before in this particular way. There needs to be a project which says there needs to be an optionality given to consumers that is not landfill packaging. 
that is reusable that they can return. Now, who is going to give that to them? And why would it not be me? Now, at that moment, of course, your floor goes away because you realize, well, kind of have a brief. You don't really have a client. You don't really have a budget. (laughs) The complexity there is that your mindset has to change. You have to drop a business plan. You have to show the opportunity. You have to understand the market. You have to understand your position in the market. You have to build a team and then you have to deliver it. And all of this sounded like an impossible dream. I I started off saying that, right? I do love the impossible. I'm always out to set an example and prove that anything is possible. And so I just thought, yes, this is huge risk. Yes, this is uncharted waters. But I had also gone through the Royal College of Art. And so my DNA was a bit different to perhaps most architects. Social norm of architects is that they only remain architects and they work in big practices and they maybe set up their own. I was breaking out of the norm. I went from architecture school, which was a Bartlett, it's a top one in, in the world. And then I decided I wanted to go to the RCA, which is a really amazing design school, to understand who else in the world do I need to be working with or could I potentially be working with? And that's how I got that taste of entrepreneurship because there is this arm inside the RCA, which is part of the industrial design engineering group, which is exactly this. You can graduate from the RCA with an idea. You can take it within the RCA and say, listen, I want to spin this out as a startup. I didn't actually do that, but I observed it and I had a flavor for it. And so when this happened, I just said, Safia, just go for it. Just do it. And I was very early in the market, 2015, incredibly early in the market, but that futurist brain of mine said, this is possible. I could see it. And I just thought, why can others not see it? And I realized consumers weren't really aware of this global issue of single-use plastics at the time. Blue Planet hadn't come out. And commercially, every single brand was completely aware that all their packaging was going into landfill, but they were not talking about it. And so I was frustrated that we were being sold this absolute lie and and myth that recycling was working. I knew recycling wasn't working, but I could see that the market trends were there towards a circular economy. I could see the work that the Ellen MacArthur Foundation were doing. I just didn't know how long it would take. That was all. And I would say sometimes it's good to be early because you get to understand all the players, you get warm in your seat, you get comfortable, you're not panicking, you know exactly what product to build. And you're that lion in the grass waiting for that wonderful catch to emerge in front of you. And then you know when you're going to jump and grab it. That's how I felt over the course of the last few years is great. You know what? I've stuck it out. I'm at the right place at the right time. The world needs optionality. Consumers are dying for this product and service. And so I'm really pleased I made those decisions as hard as they were. I want to go back to when you were confronted with what it means to make this a reality and drawing up a business plan and doubling down and actually creating a product and the system and understanding the market, like all these different things that you needed to do. So now you've decided that you're going to make the leap from 2015 to, let's say, when you decided to launch. What did you do? I basically started a whole bunch of classes. I just thought, right, I need some training because... This is a slightly different mindset. I need to understand how do I build a business plan? What does a great business plan look like? What does a really bad one look like? Just so I can understand precedents, benchmarks. I started to visit lots of different startups and innovation hubs 
around London. I started to go and watch lots of pitches by other startups in the tech space. I knew technology was a glue for what I needed to do from the beginning. So I felt like, okay, I need to just familiarize myself with the terminology that everybody uses because it's very different in the startup space to anywhere else. I just wanted to become familiar enough that I didn't feel like an outsider, which is weird because being an outsider is your secret weapons because you see things differently. So actually being an insider is very hard. If I was a packaging designer, I've met so many by now, but you can see why they struggle to see anything outside the box because they're institutionalized into this industry. They just don't know how to look outside. I'd be sitting watching pitches, just observing reactions, meeting different venture capitalists, just hearing them and angels and just familiarizing myself with the whole mechanism of how this entire system would work. And then equally trying to, I guess, put myself in there in the sense that here is our work, presenting it in any opportunity to get feedback, not just within my own network, but within the circles that I admired, the people I admired. I wanted to know who are the best at what they do and following them online, watching them, listening to them, just really trying to get a sense of this entrepreneurship bandwagon. And at the same time, I guess for me, the uh, skilling up process was one of the most important aspects. It's like, well, I've got to figure out a lot about technology. I have to understand a lot about the packaging and plastic space. I have to read up an awful lot about policy and where governments are moving and what the likelihood is of my system being the frontline winner when it comes to specific policies and all of those aspects and impact and why would this be better for the environment than the incumbent? Understanding that, measuring that and building the supply chain. I mean, what we were proposing at the time just didn't exist as a supply chain. No one was collecting consumer packaging, washing it, sanitizing it and sending it back anywhere. So I had to go and sell partnership opportunities so that I could run pilots. I set up pilots in 2016 with a university and a food contract caterer. We got fantastic results. And I had to do lots of this to get all the data to just understand what are the motivations with the product requirements, with the tech requirements, et cetera, et cetera, to then actually start to have a conversation with angels to actually then get some money in, to then actually be able to pay people and then slowly build our path on. Club Zero is capital intensive business. I've raised 1.2 million to date. It's requiring development and product engineering. So yeah, it was all of those things. If you look back now at all those different things that you did, there's product development, the money angle, there is finding your first customer, there's getting the right people on board to actually build the system. What would you say to entrepreneurs that are very early in their journey on what should they focus on first, then second, then third? Is there any advice you would give them based on your experience? I'm a stickler for sequencing. My biggest advice to anybody who is trying to get something off the ground and get any kind of angel funding is that first try and get some MVPs out, try and get some product out in people's hands so that you can evaluate the data and you can tell a story. Story is everything. You can't make up a story. And so it has to be built on tangible observations, learnings. So the first 
bit of money is going to come from your friends and family, your savings. Honestly, that's how I started. I reached out and said, listen, this is what I really need. We don't know where it's going to go. It's an experiment. And be just straight up and open and honest. That energy will come from you when you have that conversation. So my biggest advice would be get some MVPs out, get that data out, and only then try and present that to angels. Because I've seen a lot that where, where founders kind of jump that gun, they try and just off the back of a business plan, want to go straight and try and raise from angel. And that's just really hard. It just doesn't feel credible enough. And also, what is your business plan detailing exactly? If you don't understand your own early statements, how are you expecting an angel to put money towards that? So that would be my number one. If you're really early, try and get some MVPs. And MVPs should not take months and months. This is something that you can get up and running and make it easy for whoever it is that's going to try it out. If it's a B2B business, just say to them, it will cover the costs, make it as easy as possible. Some of the stuff that we were doing was just off the fly, bonkers. But, you know, it's an experiment and call it an experiment because everybody will understand it for what it is and don't put too much undue pressure on yourself in the early stages. Let's move from the early stage. You did an MVP, you got some data, you've proven the concept, you went in and then got some money and built the system for real. Is that the next step that you did? When you say for real, I mean like for the first customers that we launched with in 2018, I would still say they were our innovation partners. This is Kushman and Wakefield. It was version one. It was generation one of our product, if I look at it now. And they are traditionally the first early adopters are your guinea pigs. We went in and did a series of interviews and feedback sessions and really included them in that process. So for the first year, they used a, a very inferior version of our product, as far as I'm concerned. And then we used all of that data to inform Generation 2, which we then launched subsequently and replaced all of the previous product. And of course, you could tell they were like, oh, thank God. It was like you took away a really bad smell. And that specific partnership was critical because it tested the cafe environment, the, the user experience, but within a very controlled environment, not within a retail environment. When you put it out into the retail world, consumers are very unforgiving. You only get one go, one shot. And so this was a really great way for us to close it up, test it, and then expand it beyond. So 2018, we launched with all of these uh, wonderful folks and we won a number of awards. The Alan MacArthur Foundation gave us an incredible award and a grant as part of the New Plastics Economy Prize. We picked it up at the Irish Conference. We also ended up at Davos as part of that, which is brilliant. It's amazing. A room full of all of the global leaders making their pledges. It was surreal for all of the founders. And at that moment, we were... I guess we were so early. We were in this room. We had James Quincy, the CEO of Coca-Cola, who had just launched The World Without Waste. And he was in there at Unilever. There were some, quite a lot of famous people in the room and us. We were sort of founders and entrepreneurs and you're sort of thinking, gosh, we're really aspiring to be something phenomenal. We really felt like, oh gosh, what we're doing is very important. What we're doing is going to inform policy. What we're doing is we're all very early in this boat, but it's going to be interesting to see where we all are in a few years' time. And at that same time, of course, the consumer conscious woke up, Blue Planet came out. So the timing couldn't have been more spectacular. And I didn't feel like I was riding against the wave anymore. I felt like every meeting that we went into, people said, yep, 
we want to reduce our packaging. We realize recycling isn't working. We've seen those pictures of those turtles with plastic straws in their noses. And so everyone had this image implanted in their brain. And so it didn't feel like us firefighting or trying Mm -hmm. to perpetuate a voice. The voice came from multiple places. And that's when I realized, okay, so this is going in exactly the direction and it's slowly accelerating, which is wonderful to see. Okay. So you're now almost mainstream. You've gone to Davos. You've met Unilever and Coke, and this is real now. And you've got more money in the bank. Tell me about, I know that around 2018, 2019 is when you raised money, but also you were having a baby. Is that right? Oh, yes. So somehow just miraculously need to pop out some children and continue business as usual, which is a testament to just the female body itself and what it's capable of. But you can only push yourself so much. So yes, I had my firstborn, um, Sasha, in... March 2019, we had just won a prize with the Next Gen Consortium, Starbucks, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Yum Brands, all of those guys. I said, right, here's some money. We want you to sort of expand the opportunity in the US market. We want you to launch some pilots. We want to learn from those pilots and go. So I had had Sasha in seven weeks in. I flew to the West Coast to meet the team and say thanks and et cetera, et cetera, thinking... I can do this. This is no problem. It was, it, was a mental, it was a mental move. Seven weeks after having her being on a 13-hour flight on the other side of the world for about a week, I came back and I realized, is this it? Is this what I have to do? It was a bit much. I'm not going to lie. I would say to any woman who's hearing this, uh, please never do that to yourself. I think where it comes from is you want to have it all. And by God, we deserve it all. We're the superior human being because we can produce humans. But we do want it all. We want a fantastic business. We want a successful career. We want beautiful babies. We want a great relationship with them. We want to be outdoors. We want to pick up all the awards and all the prizes. And we want an IPO. And we want it all. And that is fine. But there has to be a balance. I love and breathe what I do. And I love my child. But I can tell you, I was not present with my baby at all. And I regret that for the first year. I I saw a massive shift after COVID, which I guess forced me to be incredibly present uh, and locked me up in a home with me and my family. And I'm, I'm happy for it, actually, because it really spelled out the contrast of what a balanced situation needs to look like. But yes, there is a point where it's hard to say no, especially if you kind of feel that you get FOMO, you just don't know when to pause or when to stop. It happens to all of us and it's, it's a learning process. I'm sure there are women that are maybe in your situation or planning to be in your situation and are hearing that. What would you say to them having gone through the experience you did? What is the right balance? Is it to step back and let someone else in? Is it to take a pause? What is the right balance in terms of having a family and pursuing your um, ambition? It's so different for every woman. So I don't want to say this is how it should be, but rather how I would have liked that to have been relayed to me was, Safia, you do what you need to do. Not, Safia, you need to step back. 
I don't think entrepreneurs ever say that. What do I need for myself? Make that list. If you are a mom or you're about to become a mom and you're really worried, make a list of things that you need for yourself. Do I need a night nanny? Yes. Do I need a really supportive husband? Yes. Or a partner? Yes, absolutely. So I don't go insane. Do I need someone who will bring all the information to whether I ask them to come and sit in my home while I'm breastfeeding my child or a call? I'm going to ask for what I need. I would like to relay this in a way where women feel empowered to make these calls because they are the business leaders. They make the decisions. Unfortunately, at the time, I was surrounded by some advisors who, male, came from a different perspective and not from the perspective that I felt was appropriate. I did not need someone to tell me you need to step away from this. That was the exact opposite. And because of that, I think I got on that plane seven weeks in because I just thought, I'm not leaving this business. What I wish had been said to me was, what do you need? And I wish what I would have responded to was to say, oh, I've just won this award. I need them to set up a digital program to include me in that program as a new mom because I do not want to fly 13 hours to Palo Alto to be present. I want a remote program so I don't have this FOMO and I can switch it on when I want And maybe they're pre-recorded sessions that I can catch up on when I'm awake and that I can potentially watch while I'm feeding my child. That's what I need. But I did not ask that and I should have asked that and I should have been empowered to ask that. I think it's such an important statement to make, Safia, because I think it's a combination of getting this kind of well-meaning but not the right advice from people, but it's also our own conditioning where we have always felt that having a baby and having a family somehow interferes with us being able to deliver our best work. And so when we are in that position, we try to make up for it by saying, oh, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will do this and I will do that. And I will do this so that this doesn't seem like it is a blocker to the person seeing us. And it's such a wrong thing to do. Yes. It's saying to the woman, you need a change. And what I'm saying is, no, everything around you needs to change. That is the difference. And if you are running a business and you own a business, and you manage a business, you make the rules. <laughs> Safia, I remember when I first met you through the unreasonable, the thing that struck me was this confidence that you have. And I just loved it. And it was so infectious. And I remember you saying, that is my superpower. And I thought, wow, I've never heard someone say that. I've never heard someone say confidence is my superpower. And I would love to hear, where did that come from? I don't know. I ask this question a lot. I look at my mother. My mother's incredible. She's a single parent. She powers through. I think it's inherited maybe. It's just also a combination of doing what's right that gives you this confidence. So I'm a big, big believer in doing right by people, a big purveyor of justice. I was that kid who'd be policing the swings, making sure that everyone got a chance to get on the swing. 
I think it's this determination to do what's right, which gives you the confidence that you are right when you're not being your best. That's when you start to self-doubt. So I think confidence comes with conviction. Conviction comes with a singular belief that you're doing what's right. I love that. When you feel you're right, that does give you confidence to power through because you're on the side of right. But I also want to touch upon the fact that you're having this exciting launch coming up. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the launch is and what listeners can do to help or support in any way? Absolutely. So super excited to share. Club Zero is launching this summer in London. And when I say London, I mean specifically King's Cross. So we have put together an amazing consortium partnership with King's Cross Argent, who own that entire that entire area, as well as a partnership with Just Eat. And we, we're launching essentially across 20 or so food and beverage outlets with new food and beverage packaging, whole system, the whole product, the whole technology is completely new. So it's the first time that we're launching an urban cluster. We, we piloted and tested this in Palo Alto, which is why I was there for quite some time. We had to pause that because of 2020 COVID. But this is the first time we have an opportunity to invite people over to try it, test it. We're going to have some time in beta phase beforehand, and then we're going to go full on out. So please get in touch. If you would like to be a beta user, drop us a note at uh, hello at clubzero.co. And we'd love to add you to the, to the list. And we can send you some exclusive invites to try it out and get your feedback. And specifically, if you're in London, head on down to King's Cross, download Club Zero app and get started. Okay. So in the last few minutes, I want to ask you my favorite questions, starting with what's your favorite book? Is there any book that influenced you as a person, as an entrepreneur, just that you love reading and you'd like to share? I actually love this book on marketing called The 22 Immutable Laws. The author has actually narrated it, which is why it's even better because audiobook is brilliant. What I loved about it was just how well it just lays everything out. When you're building a brand and I'm very much, you know, believe that brand is how you get into someone's heart. You want to understand the mission, the story, and you want to sell them this dream that their cities can be zero waste, this dream that not everything is going to be in perpetuity going into landfills, but actually perpetuity means that it's reused. And so building a brand. So this, I loved, I loved that book. Okay. What about a productivity tip or productivity tool that you use? In my diary, I block out certain times in the week to do specific things because in the humdrum of being responsive, whether it's internal or external, doing calls and meetings, you need just some time to just think. So there are certain things that I do, which means that I just block out certain hours and certain days of the week. No one can put anything in them. And it gives me this breathing space to think. I might not actually spend a lot of time thinking, but it's time that I have that's uninterrupted. I might end up reading all my emails. Who knows? I might do some reading, whatever it is. Again, I don't put too much pressure on that. And then other productivity tips is that I do yoga twice a week. So I make sure I fit that in. 
And I don't deviate from that. And I also have a manual therapist who comes and visits me to make sure that I have a nice smooth back, neck and shoulder and I feel good. So those are things that I do for me, which I started to respond more to post-COVID, just that balance that we were talking about. What about your favorite city in Europe? If you were going to just hang out? Well, it would be Venice. I've written quite a lot about Venice in the past as an architect. I've visited Venice so many times with some fantastic friends. It's a really interesting city. It can be very intense in tourist seasons, Mm -hmm. but there is this magic to the history of it, what it represents and what it is, which is just very inspiring. So when specifically European cities, I would say Venice, Barcelona is also incredible for me. And Barcelona is an example of so many different fantastic projects. Okay. And my last question is, A quote, either yours or one that you have taken to heart that means a lot to you, that you say, that you live by, or you tell others. It's from the founder of Spotify, but something very simple. It's you are what you focus on. And I think that's important because when you're setting something up, when you're building something, I know you'll get this a lot. You'll get people saying this a lot. Laser focus, laser focus. It's very true. When you focus on your team, you dedicate your energy on on specific things and outputs. It's the same with your physical product. Creating that focus continuously in your work is really important. Excellent. Well, thank you, Safia. I don't know how quickly the time went. And I'm so excited to release this episode. I think it would be really inspiring for a lot of people. And I look forward to the launch of Club Zero and seeing it in my neighborhood soon. Thank you, Anita. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building. Keep building.